wonder if you've ever had a conversation um, like I often have with friends, and, and it does two things, right? It's A, it, they tell you something or they enlighten you about something that you've never heard of before, right? They give you some new news, or B, they move you, it moves you in a way that you didn't expect it to. Recently, I had a conversation with a friend, and during that conversation, they unveiled something that I honestly have dreamt about from, ever, from when I was a kid. They unveiled to me that in the 21st century, something that I dreamed about and envisioned and couldn't even fathom would come true in my lifetime has actually come true the 21st century, and it's now out. Facebook, we all know what Facebook is, and the sunglasses brand, Ray-Bans, have teamed up to create live interactive sunglasses, right? And some of you may go, what do you see talking about live interactive sunglasses? They're basically sunglasses where you can take a photograph, a video recording, you can listen to your music the way, the way you would if you put earphones in, and it does a whole host of other things. In fact, they think that at some point in the near future, you're going to be able to sit on a bus with your sunglasses on and watch like YouTube videos or a movie on your way to work, right? These are sunglasses. Now, we have mobile phones in our pockets, and they are remarkable things, but for me, this was incredible. It blew my mind. Whenever my, my friend told me this, I was going, this is like all the spy movies I watched whenever I was growing up. I was like, I'm just going to become 007. So if you see me running around in a tuxedo and a pair of sunglasses on the next couple of weeks, at least you'll know why I'm doing it. Because the sunglasses are incredible. And they, I began to think about the effect that they would have and the fact that it could, it could actually change lives. In the same way that our mobile phones, like if you had said to my great-grandfather or even my grandfather, you know, mobile phones, there's going to be a thing where you can walk around where the wire doesn't need to be connected to the wall for you to talk to your neighbor or your cousin in Australia, right? Instead, you're going to be able to sit like on the bus or in a coffee shop. You're going to be able to call someone or text someone or even nowadays, you're able to just listen to any music you want, read anything you want, go onto the internet and find out anything you want at your fingertips. It's incredible. And so this next step that I'm seeing, these sunglasses, unbelievable. So what impact is it going to have on lives? Now, it's a difficult transition. I'm just using that illustration to show you that sometimes we get information that kind of shocks our system, don't we? And so we, we see in the text, Nehemiah 1 and 2, the first few chapter, or the first few verses of the first chapter, we see Nehemiah is approached by someone that he calls his brother. We have no idea whether it's his actual brother or it's just a brother in the faith, but he's approached by a brother and the information that Nehemiah is getting is much more spiritual than the information I got about the new sunglasses. Much more important. Nehemiah was moved by God, and he carries the burden of God's will now in his heart after hearing this. And he just he couldn't shake it off. Some of you have potentially read through the book of Nehemiah in the Bible before, and Maybe you've heard some sermon series or you've listened to some things on YouTube or a podcast about Nehemiah. And so you'll know the context. You'll know what's going on around this time. But there are also lots of us perhaps who haven't read Nehemiah before. And so we're going to spend the first few minutes together today going through this thing called context, which is really important when we're trying to understand what the purpose of the book is and what the outcome should be for Bible history and also our own lives. And so we're jumping in at chapter 1. And here's the context of the book. The book was written 
as like a journal system, journal entry system for Nehemiah, and it reads that way because he often just speaks in first person. And there's some later texts and logs added later on throughout that, that or sorry, throughout the book of Nehemiah as he progresses in the story. It was also written about a thousand years after Moses, the stories that we read about Moses in the Bible, and about 400 years before Jesus Christ came to earth. The story of Nehemiah also begins around the time frame, 15 years after the book of Ezra. So if you've been here for a while, you'll have heard some of Ezra being spoken about. You'll have learned some things about that. 15 years after the book of Ezra ends. At this point in Bible history, Jerusalem is in complete ruins. We read from the text, the nation of Israel was in a state of depression because of their oppression. They were oppressed by other kings and nations. The north and south borders were completely destroyed by battle, conquered by Babylon and Jerusalem, and the city now lay empty and in ruins for upwards of 70 years. Solomon's great temple, not to mention, has also been completely demolished, much to the heartache of the Israelites. Now, could you imagine, try to put it into your own shoes, try to jump into the shoes of the Israelites Imagine Bangor being destroyed, right? Hard, hard to take, hard one to swallow. For those of you who grew up here, it would completely devastate you. It would devastate all of us. Imagine the shops that you go to at the weekend, the coffee shops that you sit in during the week with friends and family, the places where you bring your children or your grandchildren for a weekly treat, the houses we all live in, even the church that we worship in, all gone. This is the context and the information that Nehemiah is left with. And it helps to know this because we see that Nehemiah has a response whenever he is moved by the information and moved by the will of God. When the Jewish people were exiled, some very intelligent people, much smarter than I am, reckon that there was about three million people who were exiled away from the nation. And over those years, kingdoms of the world fell to the power of the Persian Empire. And believe it or not, despite what history says, instead of less freedom being given to people, more freedom was given. That's usually not the story when it comes to history. A man called King Cyrus allowed people, people groups who had been forcibly removed by other previous oppressors before him, he allowed them to go back to their land and to begin to re-establish their kingdoms, their nations, their people groups. And to this point, out of the three million Jews roughly who left, around 50,000 had made it back to the promised land at this point. And this return from exile, just to continue painting the picture, it happened in three waves. Zerubbabel, who brought around twenty to 25,000 people back with him. Ezra, the priest that you have studied, who laid the foundations for the, Israel, for, sorry, for the spiritual reconstruction of the people of Israel. And Nehemiah, who now we're at. An administrator who was tasked with the rebuilding reconnecting and strengthening of the physical defense barriers of the city of Jerusalem. 
So what is the point of the book? On its own, the book of Nehemiah was to remind the people of God of what God himself had actually done. Brought them through incredibly dark periods of time in history and is now giving them the opportunity to come back to their promised land and to rebuild the nation. But in sight of the whole of Scripture, we can see a bit of a bigger picture. One author helpfully splits it up, splits the Bible up into three easy-to-remember parts. And the reason that they're easy to remember is because there are three things that we all learned during Sunday school. Number one, the call of Abraham. Through him and his seed, all nations of the world would be blessed. Number two, the law of Moses. When the people of God learned how to trust and to know him through the covenant of laws, sacrificial system, and priesthood. And that was given by God to Moses. And then we have this thing called the Davidic monarchy, right? And that's a really fancy way of saying that basically God promised that there was going to be a savior king that would come through the line of King David. It's called the Davidic monarchy. But at this stage in Bible history, and for around 400 more years, there was nothing. At this stage, they're still under Persian rule. They're still awaiting the king that was promised through King David's lineage. Hasn't come yet. The book is written and is helpful for pulling together some strands before the Messiah would come back in just a a short 400 years. For us, it's just a flick of a page. And although the first three quarters of the book are about the physical rebuilding of the city, Nehemiah fully understands that the exile of his people did not end there. Regardless of their physical location and the state of their land, the people of Israel remained in a spiritual exile without reconciliation with God on a spiritual level. And so I wonder then, as you begin to paint an image in your head of what is really going on in this time of Nehemiah. As we zoom into the context and we try to understand it a little bit better, I wonder to ask yourself this. Apart from the obvious purpose of the book, what can I take away from it? What can I apply to my own life? And as we wade through chapters one and two today, I ask you to be actively thinking about that in the background. Don't allow this to just be another history story or something that bridges the gap between the Old Testament and the New Testament. I believe that even in these early chapters, we can begin to take something away to apply to our own lives as we continue to rebuild our lives after the year and a half that we've had, our church after the year and a half that we've had, and the expression of God's kingdom on earth. We seek to rebuild all of those things. And as I've scanned through the book, particularly in the first two chapters, we see that there's almost a pragmatic approach to how Nehemiah deals with the circumstances. In a world where there's no radio, no BBC Newsline, no Stephen Nolan show, not that anyone would watch the Stephen Nolan show, no Facebook or national newspaper, Nehemiah is possibly hearing about the desolation of the promised land for the first time in a long time. Much like all of us, when we meet a friend or a family member that we haven't seen in a very long time, we assume that a lot has changed. 
I used to get this thing where I would go away on a, on a weekend away with, with cadets or BB and I would come home and like my mom would have her hair cut and to me like at that point everything had changed or like she has moved something in my bedroom like moved my bed over or even emptied my bin right because I never emptied my bin and I would come home and I would go oh my, like why has everything changed why is everything different Nehemiah is probably assuming that things are very different from the last time that he heard because it's been a long time with no news coming to him Before we realize exactly what is going on in these passages, we have to understand that the overarching theme is that Nehemiah took a call to action, a call to pray and to rebuild. Before we get to those points, I want us to look at verses 1 to 4 so that we can stay on track with the story and understand exactly what's going on. Chris helpfully read it for us, so you don't need to listen to me read it again, but if you could have your Bibles open to scan through it, probably be helpful for you. The first few verses we learn just a little bit about who Nehemiah was. We know by later reference, but at this point it's usually given as a prerequisite that Nehemiah was the cupbearer to the king. And to my knowledge, to my limited knowledge, the cupbearer of the king essentially stood beside the king and done whatever the king asked. King Artaxerxes I. Usually, he poured him wine. Likely, that meant that Nehemiah then was in good standing with the king as well. They liked one another. They seemed to get along, certainly from the conversations that follow in the text. And later reference dictates that he has the ear of the king, which is a pretty good reference to have. So we jump into the text knowing little more than who Nehemiah's father is, what month it was, just left, which is November, December, pretty close to Christmas, like now, and where he was. He was with King Artaxerxes I in Susa. When one of his brothers, either from the faith or through actual bloodline, came to him, and upon doing so, Something unveiled, something unraveled before Nehemiah. Nehemiah was a busy man, and so seemingly the pithy comments that he makes, the, the, two prong, the two-pronged question that he brings to his brother is this. How are the people of Israel doing? And how is the city standing? How are the people doing? It was, it was likely that he was talking about all of the people of Israel, but particularly those who are back from exile into Jerusalem. And we know that because of the reference of the city, because he continues to ask, well, how is the city? How are the city walls? He's probably unaware of the continued destruction and the lack of attention to the rebuild. He, much like us, as I said just a few moments ago, he probably assumed that a lot has changed from the last time he heard anything about Jerusalem. And I proceeds to tell him, the people are in great trouble and grace or shame. Or sorry, disgrace or shame. And that the wall which once stood as a centile protecting the people of God was in ruins and the gates burned in fire. With this crucial information, we see for the first time, without making 
firstly, any assumptions about Nehemiah that he was a man of action. According to the story we have, he heard these things and immediately he sat down and cried. He wept. And then for days after, he didn't eat and he prayed to God. Sounds like someone who takes pretty intense actions, in my opinion. See, this was a point of urgency, a point of contention in his heart of pain and suffering in his soul, so much that even during the time of his duty to the king that he was intense about how he prayed. It wasn't just a passing, fleeting prayer in the hope that God would do something. It really impacted his heart. He was intense about prayer, fasting, and supplication to the will of God. Before taking any action, he sat down before God and he cried out. And what do we learn? That he was passionate about God. Hananiah, or sorry, Nehemiah, before rebuilding, he needed to hear the will of God. And as we zoom out of the context of the Bible and we zoom into our own lives, I wonder how do you feel when you read these passages? How do you feel when you hear the story? Maybe, maybe you don't feel and maybe feelings is a bad word to say from the pulpit. But it's true, it's clear, and it's right here in the text. We have a man who hears of the works of evil that have been done to the people of God, the damage that has been done to God's physical creation, the temple, the walls, the gates, and he is moved. He is so moved by what he knows to be spiritual that he is completely unable to do anything in the physical apart from fast, pray, and mourn. There's no other alternative. There's no plan. There's no committee meeting. There's no document to fall back on. There is just simply God. In the most devastating moment in his life to this point that we know of, he depends, falls back, and relies on God alone. I wonder when the last time was that we felt like that. That when we hear the sickness, the hurt, the pain, the suffering, the separation, the disunity that can often run riot in the world and in God's community. When was the last time you were so inconsolable and, desperate, and in desperate need of God's comfort in your heart? When was the last time you desperately needed God to set a plan in your heart and move it into motion? Regrettably, if you're like me, it's been a lot longer than you'd like it to be. The good news is, Nehemiah does a great job of modeling what we do when we should get to this point. And so the first point 
that I've made and that I want to continue to make is that Nehemiah needed to hear before rebuilding. He needed to hear the word of God before rebuilding, before he came up with any committee plans, before he formalized an agreement, before he brought anybody else into the team, before he decided what he was going to do, he wanted to hear from God. And he modeled a couple of different things that I think we could take away with us today. When we hear about the world that is broken, a land that is hurting, burning, and a people who are scattered, oppressed, and tired. See, for this Old Testament book, right, there's a context, and we know we've, we've learned some of that this morning, and there's a time and a place, and we'll learn that as well. But I think it would be wrong of us to look through this book, to look past the fact that these passages, while remaining faithful to the Word of God and what it means, that somehow they don't apply to our lives. Because I think they do. I think all of Scripture has the ability to apply to our lives as long as we're willing to submit that God is still speaking to us in that way. Nehemiah hears. He hears the call of God. He recognizes the breaking heart of God because of the state of their people and their land. And the first thing he does, the very first thing that Nehemiah does is that he stops. He stops what he's doing. And he turns himself towards God and he postures himself for action. He cries and he weeps and he fasts and he mourns. And what he's doing is he's turning himself towards a God that he knows can restore all of that which is broken. Brings us to the more active points, I suppose, in these two, cha these two chapters. We see that from verse 5 onwards to verse 11, Nehemiah begins to pray. And so point number two I want to make is that Nehemiah begins to pray before rebuilding. And we have a lot to learn in this category. Again, Chris made a good job of reading it, and so you guys have it in front of you as well. And so you don't need me to read it, but... I'm going to make a generalizing, sweeping statement, right? And I'd happily be wrong about this. In fact, I, I actually want to be wrong about this one. But usually when humans get some bad news, our first reaction is not to fall on our knees, pray, posture ourselves towards God and fast. If you are one of those people, that is remarkable. Our first instance is not to want to hear the calculated voice of God. I would contend that most of the time we do the, the opposite. We look to God and say, Lord, why have you allowed this to happen? Why is this event taking place? Why is this person sick? Why have these people fallen into sin? Or 
or we question what we know about God, his sovereignty, his power, his compassion, his love, his mercy, and his ability. But here in the text, in in this prayer to God, after finding out some life-altering information and being moved to action, Nehemiah leads into a prayer, not to make an accusation to God, but in complete reverence of God. We all know how hard that is when something's not as it seemed, when something's not going the way we thought it was going to go, when life gets tough. We've all been there where it's easier to look to God and say, why have you let this happen? But instead, Nehemiah stands in reverence and refers to him as great and awesome. I'm sure after hearing the information that he heard, it didn't feel great and awesome. He has no doubt that his God is good. Despite all that has happened to the chosen people of God, he remembers that all that God has done has been by his own hand. All that he's ushered the Israelites through, the captivity by kings and nations, the endless wars that have brought destruction, the idolatry, the unsatisfactory worship. In fact, he remembers it so much that he finds it necessary to confess in verses 6 and 7. The lines of this prayer in the beginning teach us something that echoes throughout the whole prayer and actually the whole book of Nehemiah. When you're finished reading it, you'll see, and it's the word humility. We see humility also confesses sin openly. Nehemiah plainly and simply confesses sin without any attempt of excusing the sins. One author puts it this way, we must always avoid excusing ourselves in the confession of our sins. We may never say, Lord, if I sinned, or Lord, I'm sorry, but you know how hard it was, or other such nonsense. We can find great freedom in open, honest confession without any excuse or wondering if I or we have sinned or not. Because the bottom line is we have sinned. And we continue to sin before a holy God. Who by his own measure could happily leave us in the desolation that we have created ourselves. And this image that's painted in the beginning of Nehemiah is exactly that. The Israelites have continued to sin against God for so long that these are the repercussions of exactly that. But he modeled two things that I would urge us all to carry forth. And that is knowing God, seen in verse 5, and also knowing self. We see that in verse 6 and 7. The important thing is to remember that we know ourselves as sinful and in need of restoration from the only one who can provide such a thing. This was something that Nehemiah stood This was something that he stood on. This is something that he understood and that he remembers. He is sinful. God is not. And so the blame game does not work with God. 
His understanding of God's promise given to Moses was one of complete security and trust. And we see him open up this next section of dialogue between him and God by remembering the promise, doing so in a way to say, Lord, here is a confession, both on behalf of me, but also on behalf of Israel. Much like all of us in our own prayer lives, when something goes terribly wrong, we wishfully pray that the Lord would fix it. And then we say something like, God, promise you if you sort this one out, I'll not do that again. I've all been there, haven't I? Or we'll at least try our best. In a way, he's saying, Lord, we are back. Please restore us now. To reiterate the confession of sin for Israel and seek restoration, he appeals to God and in two verses, ten times over, he says the words, you're and you. Seemingly unimportant to us as we read it, but actually I think what he's saying is, we are yours, we are back, we belong to you, we need restoration. We don't belong to any other kings, nations, gods, or people, we are yours 10 times. And I know that this format of looking at text can be, can be pretty tiring, right? And it it's, seems, seems pretty boring, it's very systematic. And it is to some extent. But I wonder then again, as we zoom out of the Bible context and we zoom into our own lives again, what can we learn from this? What is the overarching thing? Is it the willingness to submit that wrongdoing is on our part? Is it that we should cry out to God when we see the effects of sin and confess, turn away and be restored to God? I think both of those things are Pretty reasonable lessons to learn. But perhaps the lesson comes beforehand when considering the rebuilding of anything that involves God, i.e. what we are going through here today at Hamilton Road Baptist Church, this attempt to rebuild our church, to rebuild our lives, to rebuild the kingdom on earth. Is that we must pray. It seems like there's way more to it, but this is what is happening. Nehemiah realizes that something needs to happen, and he, he isn't entirely sure what it is up to this point, but the first thing he does, and the first thing that he knows that he needs to do is to pray. So I think that's the first thing that we must do. We must pray. We must come before him in reverence, confess our sins, recognize him as God and ask him to be gracious. Thirdly, this point will be quicker. You'll be glad to know. Chapter one is pretty difficult to read because it's about the disastrous events that unfold before Nehemiah as he finds out this information about his people suffering and his land, it's broken. And so we, we jump into chapter two, thankfully, 
and it offers some light. And why does it offer some light? Because Nehemiah begins to make preparations to complete his part in restoring Israel. And that's God's will. He does so by addressing the king despite his fear, it says in the scripture. The king agrees to send him to Jerusalem to begin rebuilding walls. The gates that are burnt, the temple. He sees it on Nehemiah's countenance. He sees that he is sad and depressed and fed up. And he asks him a question. Why are you sad? Why are you so down? I just can't shake it. My people are broken. They're stuck in sin, exiled from God, both spiritually and physically. And then whenever they come back from exile, because Cyrus has given them the opportunity to do so, they come back to a land that was promised to be filled with blessings and it is destroyed. It's broken. The gates that once held off offenders have been burnt. The walls which fought off armies for centuries, broken. And the people who loved and worshipped the God not so long ago, dismantled and dispersed and disheartened. But the king agrees and he asks him, like any good employee or employer, he asks him, how long is this going to take? How long is this job going to be? Nehemiah doesn't really give him an answer, but he sends him on his way. And it's funny, whenever I read this, I I think about my own life and whenever someone gives grace for you to go and do something or to to go and do, particularly with church work and where you get the opportunity to go and serve God somewhere else and I see this in my own life, and I have done this. And I also have two nephews and two nieces, right? And I, if I take one of my nieces, particularly the youngest one, to the shop, this is what happens. She really chances her arm, right? So you walk into the shop, and she'll go, oh, Uncle Brian, I need, uh, I need them sweets. And I'll go, right, okay, put them in the basket or carry them. And then literally two yards, it's, I, I, oh, I really need them ones too. Right, okay. Oh, really, oh, I love them ones. They're, they're actually my favorite ones, but I still want these ones as well, right? And so like, we've all had that experience with children, grandchildren, when we take them to a shop and they're chancing their arm, much like Nehemiah right here. He gets the opportunity to go back to Jerusalem to begin to rebuild the walls and do the will of God. And he's been given the freedom to do that. He's been given basically a sabbatical from his job and he gets the opportunity to go back. And he knows that he has God with him. And so he's brazen and he says to the king, I need safety. He had the ear of the king, if you remember back to the start. I need safety. I need to be able to travel through all of these places to get to Jerusalem so that I don't get killed on the way. So the king scribbles on a letter, hands him it, and he says, oh, actually, I, I, need, uh, I need material to begin to build again. And... Uh, I need, I need somewhere to stay as well, so I actually need material to rebuild that little part of land for me. And he begins to list these things off. And it's the work of God because it's, it's the will of God. God wills it 
to happen. And so the boldness of Nehemiah to begin to ask these questions of the king who has gracefully let him go from his job to be there. We see that God is at work even in the small details. He could have left that day with his bags and said, you know what, I'll just figure out all the details on the way. But he didn't. He prepared to rebuild. He has everything, not that he wants, but that he needs. He begins making preparations with the king that he served in flesh at his back and call, but more importantly, the preparations with the king of kings in his heart. When Nehemiah had considered the matter of rebuilding the walls and rebuilding the gates and rebuilding the temple, he told the Jews that God had put into his heart to build the wall of Jerusalem. But he does not undertake it without them. He doesn't do the job without them. He certainly wouldn't have been able to build the gates, the walls, and the temple by himself in his lifetime. And so he asks them to join him. You'll find that in later passages in Nehemiah. And I think it's important to point out again as we zoom out of the text and zoom into our lives, that by stirring up ourselves and one another to that which is good, we strengthen ourselves and one another for the work. We are weak in our duty when we are cold and careless, as one author puts it. And so when we're talking about rebuilding this church, our own lives, the lives that we all enjoyed and loved before the lockdowns came, there is an actual rebuilding that's happening, whether you notice it, whether you talk about it or think about it actively. Because that, what's, that which we once knew was taken away from us. And now that we've been allowed to get some of that back or lots of that back, I suppose, at this point, there's still an ongoing rebuilding. Walls have yet to be built. Gates have yet to be built. Our hearts have yet to be built. And that is something that we cannot do on our own. Nehemiah understood that. And I hope it's something that we understand today as a church. And as we consider what it means to rebuild in these days, our lives and everything around us, and as we go with gospel intention, I think we must do three things, just as Nehemiah has modeled for us. We must hear the will of God. We must pray, asking for forgiveness and reconciliation. And we must prepare. That is a parallel for preparing your hearts for the one, the King of Kings, who will someday return. That preparation must take place. And we must do it together. And that is the only way that we can rebuild properly. Let's pray. 
Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to take a look at some of the verses in Nehemiah. We thank you, God, for what he has modeled in his life and the stories that we now read and pray over. God, I pray that despite our own sinful and deceitful hearts that we can come before you and be restored. Would you help us, God, in these days of rebuilding our own lives and our communities? Would you help us understand your word and your heart for your people? For the churches, Lord, all around this country and this world that so infect the people with the gospel. Would you guide us and strengthen us Lord, as well as building walls, would you help us take walls down where there don't need to be any? Would the gates always be open? And would the hearts of people be prepared and ready for the coming of Christ again? I pray for all of these things in your son's holy name. Amen.